When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm so glad you're here with me today. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. And Has there been a time in your lifetime where it's been more necessary to be more deeply in touch with humanity than it is right now? I would venture to say not in my lifetime. This is episode 147. I'm going to do something a little different again. I'm trying out new formats. I'm trying out new setups. Some of you might have noticed there was music for a while in the background. Some of you loved that. Some of you didn't love it. I'm just playing around at the moment. I'm kind of going through, you know, like, um, a podcast personal growth period. (laughs) So anyway, this is something new. A few weeks ago, I did an episode, another new thing, looking at just one year, 1527. The feedback on that was great. So I'm going to be doing another one in a couple of weeks looking at another important year, but I won't tell you what yet. But that episode was inspired by Bill Bryson's book where he chronicled one summer in American history, 1927. And because Bill Bryson is inspirational of all good things, I'm going to take another idea that he did in his book, At Home, A Short History of Private Life, where he examined all of the rooms in a home and how they evolved over the years. And that brings me to today. I'm going to talk about the Tudor kitchen. And I want to do this too throughout the rest of the year, go through the different rooms in a Tudor home and their history. And what they would have been, you know, how they would have been used differently than how we use it. So if this is something that you think is cool, if this is something that you're interested in, if you want me to do more episodes beyond the kitchen, looking at the privy or the bathroom or the bedroom or, you know, all of that kind of stuff, do let me know. You can leave me a comment or you can you can text the listener support number, all of that kind of stuff. You can send me an email, blah, blah, blah. But you can get show notes for this episode, as well as, of course, links to the Bill Bryson book, because you really should read it, at englandcast.com slash kitchen. I've had a lot of caffeine today, you guys. Ah, goodness. It's summer. Let's dive right in, shall we? (laughs) So the kitchen is possibly the room in our homes where technology has changed the most. So sure, electricity made TVs and stereos and mood lighting available in the living room. Running water changed the way we take baths and central heating and mattresses have changed the way we sleep. But it's in the kitchen where we see the integration of centuries of changes in technology and chemistry and looking back to how our Tudor friends would have prepared food 
and what they would have used their kitchen for gives us fascinating insights into the way we live today. Also, I should add in here, a couple of years ago, I did a couple of episodes on food and sumptuary laws. And I also did a Tudor bake-along episode with my daughter, who I think was three then. So we made Tudor jumbles and they did not come out very good. But anyway, I will link to that episode uh, in the show notes, which I already mentioned, but I will say again, are at englandcast.com slash kitchen. So for most of human history, when we lived indoors, we lived in one room and there was no distinction between the kitchen and the rest of the home, right? The kitchen was the home. A fire in the center of the home provided heat for cooking. It kept the rest of the house warm. Chimneys were actually invented during the Roman period, but they weren't very effective until the 16th century when the Tudors changed them from round to square and lined them with fireproof clay. So thank you, Tudors, for that invention. But the kitchen slash home of a medieval peasant would not have had a chimney. It would have been very, very smoky. There was a small hole in the roof, which would have pulled the smoke out, um, but it didn't do a very good job. So you can imagine how smoky it would have been, um, how unpleasant that particular part of the fire would have been. But the fire, of course, was the heart of everything in the kitchen, and the kitchen was the heart of the home. So by the transitive property, you could say that the fire is the heart of the home. And finding fuel for the fire would have been almost a full-time job. For peasants, everything that they had access to was controlled by the owner of the land. And there were very, very strict rules about what could be taken from the landowner's land, from the forest or you know what you could forage for. So peasants were not actually allowed to take wood off the ground of the forest, but they were allowed to take wood that was still attached to the trees. And so they would use these hooks on their staffs to pull branches down for use in their kitchen fires. For those who lived in areas where there weren't forests or there wasn't maybe a good supply of wood, they would have had to forage. I remember reading in the Poldark books, actually, for poor people living in Cornwall. Of course, this is later, but this same principles apply. Um, driftwood would come up on the coast and people would forage for the driftwood. Or if there was a shipwreck, people would grab the wood from that. And there was one scene in, in the, um, the Poldark books. I forget which book it was, but he talked about it was summer and they were having a bonfire. And he thought that in the winter, they would be regretting the wood that they were using for the bonfire in the summer because they would be cold and they didn't have easy access to wood because there aren't a lot of forests around there. So they would have had to save and ration their wood for use during the winter months when they needed more firewood to keep warm. Peasants would cook their very simple meals, their pottage, which was plants, vegetables, legumes, anything that they could find foraging in a pot with three iron feet that stood right in the fire. So you would cook the pottage on the fire. It was basically this kind of mix that you kept boiling of whatever you could find, and you would just keep adding into it. So it was just kind of this continually growing kind of pottage sort of soup that you had. And that was the basis of what poor people ate. And that is how you would cook your kind of main meal with that. Now, bread actually had to be sent away to a communal baking oven. And there are actually still places in the world where communal bread ovens are still used. 
I went to Morocco a few years ago and I saw these underground baking ovens where people still bring their bread to bake each day. And that's because, of course, it gets so hot and they don't want their homes to have to heat up so much from baking their bread. And so they have these these big underground ovens. Of course, it might just be in the tourist area that they have those, but I saw them. So poor people would keep using this kind of fire in the middle of the home method for hundreds of years. But the wealthier classes, for them, technology was changing in the kitchens by the 16th century. So a very, very famous example of the kitchen technology is at Hampton Court. So Henry VIII's kitchens, of course, I'm saying Henry VIII's kitchens, it, Cardinal Woolsey built Hampton Court originally, and he would have put down most of the plans for that. But Henry VIII added to it, and we still consider them Henry VIII's kitchens. It took up 55 different rooms. Over 200 people were employed in the kitchen. And those 200 people were organized into 19 departments. Some of the rooms, some of those 55 rooms were used for storage, some for cooking. There were individual fires used for cooking different types of food. So there would be really big fires for the meat and the spits, the the meat that you were turning on the spit. There was smaller fires for sauces and um, things that you you know didn't need a lot of heat for. And Henry VIII's kitchens burned as much as six tons of wood every day. There were no women employed in the kitchens at Hampton Court, so just 200 men, and they cooked enough food to feed the court of some 500 people or so twice a day. Now, Hampton Court kitchens did have chimneys, which would help take away the smoke and the smells and reduce the risk of fire. So that was kind of one of the big technological advances that Hampton Court had was these really lovely square chimneys. Henry VIII kept the kitchens in a separate block of buildings that were very far removed from his own private quarters. That was in part because he didn't want to be bothered with the smoke and the smell, but also because if there was a fire, his private rooms were less likely to be affected. This started a precedent that other wealthy households would follow. They would remove their kitchens to a separate place. In some cases, it's even a separate building. This is an interesting development because it moves the kitchen away from being at the very center and heart of the home to being really not part of the home at all, or you know, maybe down in the basement or, or in some outbuilding. In the middle classes, kitchens were starting to be built separately from the rest of the home as well, some up to 100 yards or more away. And the kitchens of the middle classes and the lower classes were the domain of women, of course, unlike those at Hampton Court. Those middle class kitchens also began to build brick ovens for baking bread, and the household would probably eat a loaf or two of bread a day. They would heat up the oven with this big roaring fire and then let it burn down to ash. Then the ashes would be removed by raking, but it was still very, very hot in the oven. So you'd put the bread into the oven, which was still hot, but cleaned of the ashes. Then you would seal it up with a wooden door that was soaked in water so that it would expand to fill up the opening of the oven. And then you would do something very, very clever. I love this idea. You would use some leftover dough and seal any openings around the door with that bread dough. But the clever part is when that extra dough was cooked through, then you would know the bread was done cooking. So of course, this is in the days before you can tell your smart speaker to set an alarm for 20 minutes or you know, an hour or whatever. So people would put this dough around the sides and, um, and that was how they knew when the bread was done then. 
So the oven, this new technology of having an oven in your home where you can do your baking at home, it was, of course, a terrible fire risk. And a fire in a bakery on Pudding Lane, of course, led to the Great Fire of London in 1666. Speaking of the Great Fire, one of the best accounts of that tragedy was by Samuel Pepys, the great diarist of the 17th century. I know it's a little bit later than our time, but if you have not read The Diary of Samuel Pepys, you should definitely read it. It's so funny. It's so raw. It's awesome. But Pepys himself recorded an earlier event in his life, a few years before, where he invited um, a colleague who was a little bit higher in rank than him to dinner. And he was horrified when the meat that was brought out had worms rolling around in it. So he wrote on Thursday, the 26th of June, 1662, which is funny because I'm recording this on the 25th of June. So it was right around this time of year. He wrote, up and took physique, but such as to go abroad with only to loosen me for I am bound. So to the office and there all morning sitting till noon and then took Commissioner Pet home to dinner with me where my stomach was turned when my sturgeon came to the table, upon which I saw very many little worms creeping, which I suppose was through the staleness of the pickle. Yuck. Even in these more expensive classes, one was never quite sure what was in one's food. And today we call this food adulteration, and it became more popular as time went on, as food was sold in greater amounts and less people were growing their own food. Uh, into the 17th and 18th century, but it was still something the Tudors would have been familiar with to a certain extent. So sugar was often made to last longer by adding gypsum and plaster of Paris, sand, or even dust. Butter would have had lard added to it. Chalk was sometimes added to milk. Arsenic of copper was added to make vegetables look greener. And red lead made Gloucester cheese lovelier to behold. Jack and the Beanstalk has the very famous line, I'll crush his bones to make my bread, showing just how commonplace additives were to food. All of this adulteration and worms creeping around fish points to an issue with preservation. Our kitchens probably have some of the highest tech appliances to be found in the home, on par with the electronics in the living room. One of the most technologically advanced is, of course, the refrigerator, which helps us to preserve our food. The Tudors didn't have refrigerators, but they did have ice from winter. Now, a couple of years ago when I did that show on food and sumptuary laws and all that kind of stuff, I talked about refrigeration. So again, I will add that to the show notes. But to touch on it really briefly here, before mechanical refrigeration systems were introduced in the 19th century, ancient people, all the way, including the Greeks and the Romans, did cool their food with ice transported from mountains. Of course, England doesn't have mountains right handy, but they can still get ice in the winter. Um, And wealthy families would have had snow cellars. And at Hampton Court, one of the kitchens probably would have been a cold kitchen where they would have kept ice from the winter. They would have dug pits in the ground and insulated that with wood and straw to store the ice. And so you could actually keep packed snow and ice for months. And that's one of the things, you know, the Elizabethan snow recipe, which was just essentially flavored ice. Um, that was extremely popular to have in the summer. And you know, you kind of hear about, oh, they served snow. Well, how did they get that? Well, they would have had this ice from the winter that they would have preserved in big giant pits or in cold cellars insulated with straw wrapped around it. Stored ice was the main means of refrigeration 
until the beginning of the 20th century. So the kitchens at Hampton Court or wherever the monarch was would have had some very basic refrigeration through ice, but most people would have preserved their foods through salting. So now we've got heating and cooling covered, but what about the other major activity in the kitchen? The washing up. Of course, there wasn't easy running water, there wasn't a dishwasher, though again at Hampton Court they did have some taps and pumps. But most people would have needed to find a source for water first. You actually might find it easier to take your dirty dishes to the water source to clean them up from there rather than bring the water into your home. Of course, water is very heavy, so it's difficult to carry. So people would often do their cleaning outdoors, even in the wintertime. Allison Sim has a book on the chores of the Tudor housewife. And I will add a link to that book in the show notes. And she talks about how you would have cleaned. So of course, like I said, people would have cleaned outdoors, even in winter. In your home, if you were not an aristocrat, you would have a sink that was probably made of a wooden bench that would hold various tubs and bowls. Then you also had to get rid of the old dirty water without a simple drain. So you would probably have to carry the dirty water outside. Now in cities, this could be difficult because dumping a lot of water in a small area could kill plants and could waterlog the ground, which was already, you know, kind of difficult on these narrow streets and narrow roads. So putting a bunch of water on that could make it even more waterlogged. Scouring was the most basic job a housewife would have to do. She usually used sharp river sand for that. So our Tudor friends would keep their kitchens clean also with cleaning supplies like vinegar, which we still use for cleaning today, rosemary and salt. We know today that the vinegar is antibacterial. The rosemary would keep away insects and the salt was used for scrubbing. There were also other plants, one called horsetail or shaved grass. Women would use that to scour their wooden and pewter things. Poorer people had dishes made of wood rather than pewter, so that would be even more difficult to clean. You can imagine how hard it would have been to scour wooden plates and wooden bowls. While no one understood bacteria or germs, there was an accepted link between cleanliness and disease. So people understood that being really dirty and not hygienic led to disease. So it was recommended, for example, that the dairy be kept so clean that a prince's bedchamber must not exceed it. So there we have it, the main activities you do in the kitchen with regarding heating, cooking, refrigeration, food storage, food preservation and washing up and cleaning. That was fun, wasn't it? So that's the gist of what Tudor kitchens would have been like for both poor people and the amazing kitchens at Hampton Court, which again, in the show notes, I'll link to some really cool videos on the kitchens at Hampton Court that you can check out. So that's it for this week. Do let me know what you thought about this episode. You can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 801-6-TESCO or facebook.com slash englandcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today. I will be back again in about two more weeks. Have a great couple of weeks, you guys. Bye-bye. Blow northern wind, a central baby sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote bord in Bauerbrick, at Sulisen. This, this new technology of having an oven, having a place where you can bake right in your own home or in a kitchen that was part of your home. Oh my God. <laughs>